Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? I'm glad to be here. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 13. As you're finding it, happy Memorial Day weekend. I love this weekend. It's the end of school, and all the kids said, praise God. I'm thankful for what it means in our nation's history. I'm thankful for service members in the history of our nation that have laid down their lives and given the ultimate sacrifice. That's what Memorial Day is meant to remember. And I'm thankful that we have a church full of people, soldiers, sailors, airmen, mostly soldiers in the army that are willing to do the same if necessary. I am just so thankful. But friends, it's the Lord's Day, and there's something far greater to celebrate and to remember than our freedom as a nation, and it is the freedom that we have in Christ. And so let's spend some time in John chapter 13 now. Uh, I was in India last week. Uh, thank you for your prayers. I made it back. SpiceJet flight was successful. I see Reuben is back. He made it back from Uganda and visiting his family in Zimbabwe. In fact, Reuben is preaching next Sunday. Praise God for Tyler's message last Sunday as he finished up John chapter 12. And we find ourselves in John chapter 13. We're going to look at this famous story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through this passage here in just a moment. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to work through it. And I, I have a, a kind of outline that I'm going to hang my thoughts on, which I'll give to you in just a second. But here's, here's a point I want to make before we read the text. There's this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, don't flip there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the end of it, where Paul makes this statement about how we grow in Christ, how Christians who are, by the Lord's promise, going to be like Jesus on that final day, how that process happens. And Paul says that, that, that by the Spirit of the Lord, we are being transformed. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transform from one degree of glory to another. And so there's this, there's this principle there that as we see the Lord, as we behold Him, then it, it does something in us. It changes us. To, to behold the Lord, if you are in Christ, is to inevitably become like the Lord. I think that's what Paul is saying there. And so in just a moment, I'm going to read the text, and it will be, I guarantee you, it will be the best part of the sermon. So if you're going to pay attention to anything, pay attention to the reading of God's Word. It is the only part of this sermon that is infallible, that is inspired, that is directly authoritative, that has the power from heaven to actually change us. So let's give our attention to God's Word. Are you glad to be in church today? Okay, I'm not sure about it yet, but I hope that at the end of this, we can say we are. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Oh, praise God. During supper... 
When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand this text. Thank you for the Lord's day. It is in you we confess that we live and move and have our being. Now, Lord, take your word and make us more like Christ. Sanctify us by your word, which is truth. And, and Lord, I pray that if there's friends in this room who do not know you, that you, God, by your sovereign, sweet, kind, rich in mercy grace, would give them a new heart so that they can believe. And do this all, Lord, for our joy and for your glory, ultimately. We pray it with confidence and faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. Here's what I want us to hang our thoughts on as we work through this passage. There's three, I kind of outline three points. One, Jesus' love. Two, Judas' heart. And then three, our feet. First, Judas, Jesus' love. Secondly, Judas' heart. Then thirdly, our feet. Let's look first at what this passage tells us about Jesus' love. Now, John's gospel it can be called in many ways, it's a beautiful gospel, maybe one of the most favorite gospels of all. Uh, many people start reading the Bible by reading John's gospel, but John's gospel can be called the, the love gospel. And why is this? Well, the word love and its various derivations is used four times as much in the gospel of John than in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's not to say that the theme of those gospels doesn't include John's 
uh, Jesus' love as well, but it is to say that it is a particular theme of John. In fact, in these chapters, verses John 13 through 17, which is a portion of Scripture which is commonly called the final discourse, meaning that Jesus is giving his last words to his disciples. So the public ministry of Jesus has really ended, except obviously for his very public crucifixion that we'll read about in the end of John. But the public teaching and miracles of Jesus has ended. And in John chapter 13 through 17, those few chapters, is his private behind-the-scenes ministry just to his disciples. And this is called the final discourse. And in these chapters, 13 through 17, the most common word used of all is the word love. Specifically, the love that Jesus has for his people and the love that we should have for one another. So John, in particular, maybe more so than any other book in the Bible, and any other gospel certainly, is taken, he's captivated with the love of Christ. And he wants his readers, he wants us to experience, not just to know it, but to experience it and feel it and and to trust in it. In fact, John writes in his epistle, he writes three more letters that find their way at the end of the Bible that we know of as our New Testament. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, there's this famous, beautiful verse which would be worth memorizing. And he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons or children of God. I like the older version. It says, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. So John is preoccupied with the love of Christ. And look again at at verse 1 there where it says that Jesus loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. Now what does this to the end mean? Does it mean to the end of their life or was it to the end of his life? Was it to the end of his ministry? Or does it mean that Jesus loves his people to the end of eternity? I think yes, The answers to that question are yes, yes, and yes. He loves us to the end. I remember when our children were little and we used to read from to them from the Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't know if any of you parents have that Storybook Bible. It's a wonderful, wonderful Bible. Very simple. In fact, just a little little note. Uh, I actually, when I preach through Old Testament, famous Old Testament passages, I will look at that children's Bible because I think it summarizes Old Testament stories so well that I will actually go and read that children's Bible to make sure that I'm getting really the heart of the point of the passage. So there, your pastor is referring to children's Bible for sermon preparation. But I think it's a beautiful Bible. And there's this phrase that happens over and over and over again in that Jesus storybook Bible. And it pertains to the the love that God has for his people and the phrase that the author uses. And of course, it's just a paraphrase for very young children. It's he speaks of God's love or the, the author. I think it's actually a woman speaks of God's love as the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. That's the type of love that Jesus has for his people. A love that goes all the way to the end and beyond into eternity. Consider just the power of this kind of love that we even see imperfectly in human relationships. Even modeled here imperfectly on earth horizontally. Even between a father and a son. Think think of a son 
who has maybe a very wealthy and powerful father that has everything to give that son, and he gives his son every sort of materialistic advantage in the world, but he does not give his son love, that son will be, will be, will be empty in his soul. But then contrast that with a, a dad who doesn't have much, who, who barely can scratch together two nickels and can barely provide for his family, but he lavishes upon his earthly son a love that only a father can give his son. And what do you see in that son who may not have anything materialistically of advantage in this world, but he has the love of his father? You see somebody who is stable and solid and knows who they are, even Perfectly, that's a picture of the power of the love that God has for his people, that Jesus has for his followers. Here's the question, Christian. Do you know, not just do you know about theoretically or doctrinally, but do you know that Jesus loves you? We know that little song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Friends, there is maybe no, no more powerful truth in the Christian life than to know the love of of God in Christ Jesus. Not just objectively, because it's theologically true, or because you learned it in a sermon or a class or in your Bible reading, but do you know, have you experienced the love of Jesus in your soul? Do you feel it? Now, I don't mean to contradict everything that I've said over the past 17 years that we've been a church, because I often sometimes rail against this culture that majors on feelings. You know what I mean? Feelings. Like, I'm all up in my feels. And I think one of the great problems in our culture today is we are such sensitive, weak-minded people, and the, the, highest, the highest authority in our culture is how I feel about how you treat me or value me, and that is a terrible way to do culture and society. But I think I'm standing on good biblical grounds when I say that God intends for us not just to know about his love, but to actually experience his love and feel his love. Where do I get that from? Well, I get it from the Bible. Let me just read to you Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, or verse, Ephesians 3, verse th chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And I'm stumbling because I don't have my glasses, so this is going to be an adventure. For this reason, listen to this, have in your mind experiencing the love of God in Christ Jesus. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every name in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may Dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. So there's this knowledge to comprehend. And, 
verse 19, to know the love of Christ, to experience it, for it to seep down from your head, down into your heart, into the very marrow of your bones, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Christian, do you know that Jesus loves you? And here's the deal about the Christian life. We forget that God loves us. That's why we regularly gather. That's why the Lord has given us the church. That's why he's given us his word. That's why he's given us each other to be a kind of echo chamber of remembering and washing each other off from the, the, the rot of this world and coming back in and reminding one another that we are children. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be children of God, that he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. There's just a question before we move on. What's helping, what's helping you experience the love of God and what's hindering you from it? Let's think about some things that might be hindering you. Maybe some sin that you're harboring, some unconfessed sin. Maybe some mindless entertainment. Maybe some social media that just makes you mad. This causes you to be angry and self-justifying and defensive. Conversely, what, what's helping you? What's helping you experience the love of God in your life? Maybe waking up an hour early to start your day with the Lord or walking in the evening intentionally to decompress from this world and spend time with the Lord and with your family. Friends, think about, just maybe make a little, note to, a, a little mental note to yourself or an actual note maybe in your sermon notes or whatever just as a kind of action item from this text is just to consider, spend time thinking what is helping me, what, what fuels my love for God and my sense of his love for me and what, what depletes it, what hinders it, what helps and what hinders my experiencing of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And what is this? Finally, one final thought before we move on. What is knowing this love? Why is this so important? Why is this so important? So that we can kind of hold hands every Sunday and sing kumbaya and have the good feels and get goosebumps? No, I'm not opposed to goosebumps. I'm not even opposed to kumbaya. I, I love those type of things. I am a sentimental sap. But what, what practically, how does this knowing, this head knowledge that seeps down in my heart, what is this knowing, this experiential love that he loves me to the end and beyond, this type of never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love, what should it produce in our hearts? Well, I think the biblical answer is that knowing that we are loved fuels our heart towards obedience. Think about that son whose dad doesn't really have anything materialistic to give him, but he has love to give him. It produces in that son a stability, a joy, a maturity, a sense of who he is that produces in him a kind of fruitfulness and productivity in life that honors the Father. It, if we're not grasping for love that we don't know that we have, then we are more apt to give our lives away because we are so loved, because we have everything that we truly need, we don't need to hoard. And the love of Christ starts to taste so good to us that increasingly sin starts to taste so dissatisfying to us that here in in this way of experiencing the love of God becomes one of the most potent sanctification tools in the love, in the life of a Christian. Uh, Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor back in the 1600s, wrote one of the most famous sermons, I think, 
in the past several hundred years. I refer to it often. It's called the expulsive, not the explosive, but the expulsive, meaning it expels, the expulsive power of a new affection. And when he says that, the Christian life is all about being so in love with the Lord that this greater affection, which is the love of God in Christ for your soul, expels, it crowds out lesser affections. And that's really the Christian life. Okay, that's Jesus' love. What, about, what, about, what does this text tell us about Judas' heart? Let's look at Judas' heart. What do we know about Judas so far? Look again at verse 2. So this is this supper. And the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Now that's not Simon Peter. It's just saying that Judas' father was named Simon. The devil had put it into Judas's, Judas Iscariot's heart to betray him. So what do we know about Judas so far. Remember, this is the same Judas who just a chapter before, when we looked at that beautiful story of Mary anointing Jesus with this expensive oil, he objected to Mary anointing Jesus with oil because he said that, you know, this could be money better spent. We could sell this oil and we could use this for ministry, but we actually read behind the scenes, we understand that he was actually he had sticky fingers, and he was reaching into the treasury, into the money bag, because he was a thief. And we also know that none of this is about to surprise Jesus. In fact, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at Judas' betrayal and Jesus' direct interaction with Judas. And we're going to find out, well, we already know this, that Jesus knew all along that Judas would betray him. All the way back in John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, this Beautiful chapter where Jesus walks on water. He feeds the 5,000. He preaches a hard sermon. A bunch of people leave. And then Jesus answered them in verse 70 of John chapter 6. Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So we know that this, this John has been hinting, he's been dropping breadcrumbs all along that this is going to happen, and it's happening now. Judas is betraying Jesus. This brings up a question. Why? Why would Jesus choose Judas, this man that he knows is going to betray him so terribly, why would he choose him as one of the twelve, even though he knew all along? Friends, we're getting into deep waters of the providence and sovereignty and purposes of God. But let it just, let it, let's zoom out for just a second and let, it, let us take comfort that God had a plan to use Judas' betrayal to be, at least on some level, a warning to us and a picture of his sovereignty over even the thwarts and plans of the enemy. Proverbs 16, verse 4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So you think things aren't necessarily going well in your life, that maybe something, some cog in the machine, some wrench in the plans has happened, and Jesus has intentionally included a betrayer into his closest associates for the purpose of somehow displaying his glory, and in this text, I believe, warning us about this condition of our hearts. Judas is a warning to us. You can walk with the Lord for years. You can demonstrate external signs. You can have the right confessions. You can know all the good doctrine. You can witness miracles. You can be on the leadership team. But listen to me, friends. Only God can give you a new heart. 
Only God can give you eyes to see and only God can give you ears to hear. Salvation is not ultimately a progression that the human mind makes as it figures things out. Salvation is a miracle of God. And we see that pictured for us so drastically in the life of Judas. But another question before we move on to our feet, another question comes up. What, what are we to make of the devil's involvement here? Back to verse 2, notice how it says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. So, so what are we to make of that? Well, a couple things we need to say. One, I think some people get kind of freaked out. C.S. Lewis said famously that Christians make one of two mistakes. We tend to speak too much about the devil and spiritual warfare, a kind of overemphasis on it, or we tend to speak too little about it, an underemphasis on it. There's a biblical balance there, so we need to say a couple things before we think about the devil's involvement in the heart of Judas. First, the devil is not omniscient or omnipotent. In other words, he doesn't know all things and he cannot do all things. I refer you to Job chapter 1, which I won't take the time to read, where there's this incredible scene in heaven where the, the devil actually has to come present himself to the Lord in the heavenly courts, and God actually brings up Job as a candidate for the devil's harassment, but then God gives the devil a, a kind of leash. He says you can do, you can touch his life, but you can't touch him. You can touch all the things that he has, but you can't touch him. So God is sovereign over the devil. He doesn't know all things and he cannot do all things. However, it's clear from the scriptures that in God's providence and plan, he has been given, speaking of the devil, a temporary and limited role in this world. In fact, this world, and when we talk about the world in the New Testament, it's not necessarily speaking to this this, this physical ball of dirt that's floating around the sun, but it's, it's talking about this system, this, this, this fallen world, this society that is culture and mankind and, and all of our interactions. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, tell us that he is the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience, which is Paul's way of talking about all those that do not know the Lord. So it's not to say that every unbeliever is directly being controlled by Satan, but it is to say that they, you either live in one or two, two kingdoms. You are either in the kingdom of this world or you are in the kingdom of our God in Christ Jesus. And the, the limited ruler of the kingdom of this world, at least temporarily, is the devil. And he, God has his purposes for the final and full defeat of him, but he is the prince of the power of the air, and he works in the sons of disobedience. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 that he is like a lion roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. And Paul warns us in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27 that we should give the devil no opportunity in our lives. And Paul is speaking to Christians, and so I think the picture that I have here is that the devil is kind of probing around, looking 
for a foothold, a, a kind of entry point into our hearts, not so that he might possess us or cause us to lose our salvation, but that he might discourage us and wreak havoc in our lives. He probes the perimeter of our heart looking for entry points. Where do I see this? I see this in the book of James. Let me go to James chapter, chapter 1. And it's this, this sort of analogy, it's, 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 this, it's this display of the, the process of spiritual temptation and sin and, and, and our hearts being led astray by this mysterious combination of what's already inside of us and the devil probing the perimeter of our hearts. And this is what James says. James chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And so as a result of the fall, we all have this fallen nature within us, these, these desires that even if we're born again are still part of this old man, this zombie nature that still lives within us that we have to still put to death daily. And sin happens when this desire meets this temptation and this opportunity. And these two things, in a sense, conceive. They mate and they bear the fruit of sin. But Paul gives, or J- James gives us a little bit more picture there. And we go to James chapter 4, a little bit deeper analysis of the process. James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are war within you so we we want stuff that we can't have and so we just we rage and we have these passions in us and then if you go to verse 4 of James chapter 4 he speaks of the world and he says you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God and it's opposed to God therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God so we've got this inner desire we've got this world that's controlled we know by the prince of the power of the air which is Satan And then we've got the devil probing, probing the perimeter of our heart, seeing if there's some some open spot. And verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so we see here that Judas's heart was vulnerable. He had made a decision. He had given himself over to the lusts of his heart, to the desire for riches, for the desire for money, for, for whatever, the desire for whatever. And the devil found entry into his heart and put it into his heart to ultimately betray the Lord. Friends, what should we make of this? The question then is not so much for us to think about casting out demons. Here's the spiritual warfare. It's not so much about casting out demons around us and speaking to you know, principalities and powers as maybe some prosperity gospel or word of faith false teachers might have us do, but to manage our own heart. The battle of the Christian life, the spiritual warfare, is first fought within. We have a decision to make to either let the devil in or not. Judas did, and we see what has happened. And so the question is, how is your heart? How's your heart, dear brother or sister? Is it defensive? Is it angry? Is it tired? Is it anxious? Is it weak? Ultimately, is it vulnerable? Friends, the Lord knows all of this. He knows all of this. Take it to Him. Don't let pride or laziness or fear of rejection or a kind of nominal, weak, lazy Christian life keep you from going 
to the Lord. He will not cast you away. He will not turn you aside. No matter what your last week has been like, no matter how weak you feel spiritually, no matter how unqualified you feel to come to him, that is not the issue. The issue is, will you come to him? Friends, he delights in taking weak and wounded, sick and sore, and healing up, binding up the wounds of our hearts, regardless of whether they are self-inflicted or not. This is what Jesus says in John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Listen to this second half. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Friends, maybe the most important thing right now in this service, in this passage, is for you to reason that the Lord loves you if you are in Christ. Your heart may be wounded. It may be weak. It may be racked with sin. What decision will you make? Will you go to him or will you stay in the corner nursing your own sin and pain? And the the call from this passage, the warning from Judas is not to retreat into ourselves, into our own flesh, but to go to the Lord with all of our mess and say, heal my heart. Bind up the wounds of my heart. And Judas is a warning to us of the outcome of a proud and selfish heart. So that's Jesus' love, Judas's heart, and finally, our feet. Let's make sure we understand what this passage is saying to us about the washing of the feet. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. Jesus, and this is amazing, all of this swirling around him, the cross he knows is coming, Judas he knows is about to betray him, and you might think that Jesus would kind of, you know, draw up some battle plans, hey, I want to make sure everybody knows where they're supposed to be, but instead of doing that, he just calmly washes the feet of his disciples. Jesus, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. There's just this calmness to the authority of Jesus. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. He is about to be crucified. He is about to be betrayed by one of his closest followers. And the reaction of Jesus, the response of Jesus to all of that tumult is to wash the disciples' feet. That is stunning. What, 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 what are we to make of that? It's the calmness and the sovereignty of God. His hour was approaching. Judas is betraying. Jesus gets up, and instead of being defensive and making sure everybody knew their places and their parts, when the game, when the, when the, when the, when the whistle blows, he washes the disciples' feet. And let's look at Peter's reaction, verses 6 through 10. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. So I think Jesus is linking what he's about to do as a kind of picture of the cross. Afterward, meaning after I am crucified, after I bear the wrath of God on the cross for my people and rise again in victory over death, sin, and the grave, when the washing of my work on the cross is applied to your hearts and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, then you will understand. So this isn't just some mere ceremony. This is not, friends, this is not just an example of how to be humble or sacrificial or a good leadership lesson. That's not ultimately what this is. Does does it speak to those things? Yes, 
But Jesus washing the feet of the disciples is a picture ultimately of the cross, how he washes us from the stain of sin that only he can remove. And he's saying to Peter, look, you don't get it just yet, but you will understand. And Peter said to him in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, you know, if I don't go to the cross and do what you ultimately truly need, which is your sins forgiven and reconciliation with a holy God, you don't have any part of me. You have no fellowship with me. And then Simon Peter said, I mean, he's almost, I love Peter. He's kind of schizophrenic. He goes from saying, don't wash my feet, to then saying, okay, do it all. You know, I mean, we, we, we bust on Peter, but I tell you, at least Peter had a little juice, right? A little juice. We could use a little juice. And Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And then Jesus says in verse 10, and we got to piece together verse 8 and verse 10. Jesus said in verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it is, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. So Jesus is actually, in a sense, within verses 8 through 10, sort of using the act of foot washing in two different expressions. In verse 8, he's speaking of it really as, as this salvation experience. There's this first initial washing that every person has to have, and if they don't have, they have no communion with Jesus. That's obviously speaking of, of salvation. And Jesus is telling Peter, if you don't have this, if, if I don't ultimately in a sense, spiritually, one time wash you, you have no fellowship, no partaking with me. But now Jesus transitions it and applies it in a kind of post-salvation, sanctification, set-apart, holiness sort of way. And he says that the one who has bathed, in other words, one time under repentance for salvation, does not need to wash over and over and over again. In other words, you don't need to get saved every morning for your new sins. We have been saved once and for all, Hebrews says, by the work of Christ, except for his feet. But it's completely clean, and you're clean, but not every one of you. And obviously, he was speaking about Judas. So what is Jesus? He's actually taking foot washing here, and he's giving it a kind of dual application. There's a primary, one-time washing that we all need, and then there is a secondary, daily washing, not of the whole body unto salvation, not of the whole soul, a bathing but a cleansing of our feet that is part of the daily set-apart sanctification and preparation of every Christian. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. He's saying, this is what I have come to do for you. And so then Jesus again takes this turn. He's saying, it's not, now it's not just what I'm doing to you, but he takes his actions of foot washing and he applies it to all of us. Verses 11 through 15, listen to this, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So it's not like Judas lost his salvation. He never had it. He had a purpose. The Lord knew it. He's a warning to us to tend to our heart. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Listen to verse 14 and 15 now. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you 
also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So Jesus is taking this one act and he's doing so many things with these. It's a picture of salvation. You don't have this one washing, you have no part with me. It's also a picture, picture of what we daily need from the Lord and sanctification and preparation for being sent out. And then thirdly, now because Jesus has done it to us, it is an example. It does become a pattern by which we then are to serve and love one another. As I've washed your feet, then you are to wash others' feet. That's the point of this text, primarily. That Jesus washes us for salvation. He washes us daily for sanctification. And the way he does that is through using his people to apply the washing of the water of the word to one another in daily fellowship and life together. Now, just a side note, some Christians see this, this foot washing as an ordinance. Maybe you grew up in a church that practiced foot washing regularly, kind of on the same level that we would practice baptism and the Lord's Supper. That has not been the practice of most Christians in the history of the church. Why is that? Well, for a couple reasons. One, it's only mentioned here, the only time it's ever mentioned, other than 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, where it's speaking of a widow who is just performing good acts towards other people in the church, sort of metaphorically. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. And the difference between how foot washing functions in the church compared to baptism and the Lord's Supper is that baptism and the Lord's Supper primarily and exclusively point to what Jesus has done once and for all for us. Baptism, salvation, Lord's Supper, the cross, communion with Him. Whereas foot washing, yes, does point to what Christ has done, but then progressively daily points to what we must do in daily life. Therefore, it's a picture of of a principle rather than a specific deed. And for this reason, most Christians, the vast majority of Christians in the history of church, have not seen it as something that we are commanded to do as a kind of physical act. Now, if you grew up in a church that did it, I think it's fine with it. It's not like it's sinful necessarily, but it's not a requirement of a church. But don't, let's not lose sight of this. And this is, we're coming down to an end now. What, what, what's the application here, friends? Verses 14 and 15, give it to us. Jesus says, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You ought to wash one another's feet. That's the point of this text primarily. So here's the question, friends, as we end. Are you, are you getting your feet washed regularly? First, have you been washed by the blood for salvation? Do you know Jesus? Has he forgiven you of your sins? Are you trusting in him? This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the good news of the gospel, is that God is holy. He's created everything that is we have all rebelled and fallen. We are by nature sinners. All of this was part of God's plan. He sent His Son, God in the flesh, the Son of God, fully God, truly man, to become fully, truly man, to obey Him perfectly, to lay down His life on the cross, to absorb the punishment and wrath that should have been ours so that whosoever would trust, would hope in Jesus' righteousness, in Jesus' obedience, and not their own, will be reconciled, saved, united with Him forever and ever, and live with Him and be clean once and for all. Friends, you must do that. You must do that. And only God can give you the heart, the eyes, the ears to see. He will take even a, just a mediocre 
church, a, a, an average sermon, a, a word preached, a word said about the good news of the gospel, and he will cause it to hit your heart, and it will make you alive, and you will see and you'll be able to trust that Jesus is your Lord. And that you need his forgiveness and that he is your only hope. Friends, if you didn't know the Lord before you came in here and that's becoming obvious to you, that's the most important thing you need to do is trust in Christ. That's your only hope. But secondly, if you are a Christian and you have done this, are you, are you getting your feet washed regularly or is your Christian life on autopilot? Are you humming along? You, you checked the box a long time ago and now you're just kind of this guy who shows up most of the time and you're pretty proud of yourself because you're part of a church that takes doctrine seriously. And so you get to know, yeah, I got these categories. God is sovereign. We're sinful. Jesus is the only way. And look at all those other sorry little liberal churches out there. They're doing And there's nothing in your life. There's nothing in your life that actually commends a kind of tenacity to love and be serving and to be walking and to to, to be used by God. Friends, the question is, are your feet being washed regularly by God? This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He's talking about marriage, but here's the picture. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. And this this is a picture of how Jesus loves us and how husbands, by the way, are supposed to Love their wives. This is not a sermon on marriage, but if the Holy Spirit wants to take this and run a little rabbit trail in your heart and convict you and do some work in you, then let it be so. But here's the point, is that this is how Christ loves us, having cleansed her, meaning the church, the bride, us, by the washing of water with the word. So Jesus is not physically present here to wash our feet. How does he wash us? He washes us with his word that he has given us, which is infallible and perfect and true and authoritative, and the Spirit of God works through the Word of God in the people of God, and He washes our soul. So how do you get your feet washed by Jesus? By being a person who immerses your life in the biblical, Word-centered community of a local church where the Word of God is central, where the people of God are imperfect but love one another, and the Spirit of God is active because the Spirit attends to the preaching and teaching of his word. That's how you get washed. Are you giving yourself to that? And here's the last question. Are you washing feet? Are you washing feet? Metaphorically speaking, obviously. Friends, this, the picture here is that the church is to be an outpost of foot washers. Not not people with swords drawn and and the the strong, not people that have a a good 40 time and can bench press a 6'3", 220 and full of charisma. Not people who are super gifted and all these things. But the church is to be a merry band, an outpost of foot washers. That's God's plan to spread the aroma of the foot washing king to this world is a merry band of local church Foot washers. And it's a counter-cultural, compelling community who becomes an aroma of the foot-washing king, a people who look out for one another's interests more than their own and their love for one another that we'll read in a couple weeks in the second half of John 13 becomes so compelling that their love for one another becomes to those whom God is saving an irresistible draw to the beauty and sufficiency of Christ. 
And while the world stomps and kicks itself, the church offers a beautiful gospel counter. It takes its towel, ties it around its waist, and it washes one another's feet. I don't have time. I've gone too long. We could do part two of this sermon, which we won't do, considering what does that look like for you? What does foot washing look like for you, dear person, dear member of Crosspoint? Do you have your head on a swivel? I mean, come on, we're so programmed, we're so wired. We are disciples of American materialism. I want this and I want it now. My goodness, I mean, we want, we are, we are wired, we are, the, the greatest, the greatest cultural power in our society is customer service, and if we don't get it, we are angry. That's why, by the way, Chick-fil-A is so successful. I mean, okay, you can like the chicken and everything, but we just like for somebody to be good to us and to do their job good, and I'm, praise God for Chick-fil-A's drive-thru, but don't let it disciple you into thinking that that's the way the world treats you, and if it doesn't treat you like that, you're somehow a victim. Because you're not wired to be that. You're not to be, you're not wired to get your feet and only your feet washed day after day. What does Jesus say in verse 14? He says, I've washed your feet not so that you could be a foot wash pedicure having person who sits there putting perfume on your own feet, but so that you might wrap a towel around your waist and wash other people's feet. That's where joy is. That's where happiness is. That's where the life and the love and the gospel power of the church is in our humility so that we model the foot-washing victorious king who conquers through humble love. That's all I got. Let's pray. Lord, help us with this. Help us with this. Help me with this, Lord. Make us humble foot washers. Make us a merry band of people with towels around our waist. Make us know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let us feel it, Lord, if there's a young man in here who is in the clutches of the flesh, the world, and the devil, who has opened up the perimeter of his heart to all manner of sin. Lord, let him run to you. Let him come to you. Don't delay, friend. And Father, if our hearts are tattered, if they're weak, if they're vulnerable, if they're angry, if, 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 if we are so consumed with how we aren't served well that it's just made us like Judas, just self-righteous thieves, we're glory thieves, and Lord, reorient us, I pray. Let us be overcome with the love and the beauty and the satisfaction that Jesus alone can give. And then, Lord, let it not dead end in us, but let it push us, push us, Lord, into a, a desire to just give our lives away, to serve others, to, to just practically greet people, to love people with our words, to love people with our countenance, to love people with our smile, to love people with organic and impromptu acts of caring for them more than we care for ourselves. Lord, fill our lives with that. Fill this church with that, Lord. And then, Lord, do beautiful things among us, I pray. For the glory of your name, for the good of your people, for the beautification of this church, Lord, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.